Hey guys, welcome back to um, the Hellside Strangler Devil in Disguise, um, part three, episode two that we're going to be listening to now. Remember the voices from the previous video? They're primarily similar to the ones in all throughout the episodes of the documentary series. And they and they are similar because they actually have the same people there. The same people that spent time with Kevin Bianchi and did an investigation on him and the detectives. They're all the same. Unless there's someone new. And then I'll mention your names to you guys. On for about two years, up until like 1978. This one night, he said, I want to take you out to dinner. I want to take you to the tiki room. And he goes, Come after I get off work. I said, Okay. So I showed up at Ken's apartment. I'm knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And the manager comes over and she goes, sweetie, he, he's gone. What do you mean he's gone? She goes, he left. He took everything and left. He moved out. I walked in and everything was gone. All his belongings were gone. There was nothing. I was devastated. And I just felt so betrayed and so hurt. Later on, I found out. He had moved up to Washington to follow a girl that was pregnant. I knew nothing about this other girl at all. I wish that's all it was with somebody else. What he was hiding is just beyond belief. In Los Angeles, they're still looking for the Hillside Strangler. A year and a half later, there have been as many as 9,000 names on the list of suspects. 
Police now believe 10 women have been killed by the same suspect or suspects. The last one, Cindy Hudspeth, was found in, I think it was February of 78. And then there wasn't anything attributed to the so-called hillside strangler. When you're working a case like that and you're not getting any new information, it's really, really frustrating. Okay, so I was wrong. It wasn't seven victims, it was ten. My apologies. We knew who we were looking for. We didn't know who we was, but we were looking for somebody with a badge or power of authority. Every one of those victims went along with the suspect. And we also figured there had to be two guys. The bodies could not have been placed where they were unless they were carried. It's certainly not a crime-ridden area, and still it's not. 
this was a place where people necessarily didn't lock their doors. It was certainly not a crime-ridden area, and it still was not. This one. This is Dave McIrchuran. McIrchuran, if I'm butchering it, my apologies. He is, I think, I don't know how they call it, but it's RTE. It's R-E-T, Whitcomb County Prosecutor. The place where people necessarily didn't lock their doors. Every morning, the Bellingham Police Department would bring all the reports over from the night before. January 12, 1979, the detective sergeant from Bellingham indicated that they were very concerned about two girls who were missing. These two girls were two college students. One of them, Karen Mitt from Bellingham, indicated that they were very concerned about two girls who were missing. These two girls... This is Jim Gaddies. He's a detective sergeant in Bellingham Police. For two college students. One of them, Karen Mandick. And my part-time job at Fred Myers, the grocery store. And the other girl was a Diane Wilder, who was the roommate of Karen. Karen Mandick's boyfriend was a campus police officer, and he had become alarmed because she was supposed to have returned from some sort of house-sitting job that she and Diane were supposed to do, and she had not. According to the boyfriend, each of the girls would get $100. 1979 for a college kid, $100 for two hours. That's something to get excited about. Karen Mandick's boyfriend could not remember the name of the person uh, that she had mentioned had given her this job, but he knew that he had worked for Watcom Security and he had worked at Fred Meyer Security initially. So the police called the owner of Watcom Security. And he said, well, that's Ken Bianchi. I hired him from Fred Myers. He said, look, I don't know of any case we have that would be providing security in the area. But he said, let me check. And so he called Ken Bianchi up and asked him. And uh, Ken Bianchi said he had gone to a Watkins County Reserve meeting that night. He had applied to be a reserve deputy in the Watkins County Sheriff's Office. And he said, furthermore, he did not know the name Karen Mandick. Officers knew that he did know Karen Mandick. They checked on the sheriff's reserve meeting. They found he had not gone to the meeting. And so they just had a real feeling that something was amiss with Mr. Bianchi. Later that same day, the boyfriend searched the girl's apartment and found a note written in red handwriting. And it said that Karen can be called and listed his phone number. The number was Watcom Security. I went down to... January 12, 1979, at 9.45 in the morning. The Watkins Security Office, there I contacted Kenneth Bianchi and told him the reason for our visit. It wasn't really a long conversation. I guess what I did that night, they asked me if I knew Karen Mandick. And it didn't ring a bell. They went on and, and towards the tail end mentioned that Karen Mandick had a boyfriend who was a campus police officer. And then the wheel started turning. 
the last time that you saw Karen? He said, I think it was in November when I left Fred Myers to come to work for Watcom Security. I said, you've had no other contact between then and now? He says, no, no contact at all. Could you tell us about what you did last night? This time, he said he didn't go to the reserve meeting. He said, I was here at work until about 6.30. Then I went home and had some dinner. Then I came back down here to finish up paperwork. Then I went home and I was there for the rest of the evening. That was a different sequence of events. So I spoke to the owner of Watkins Security and crisis. The girls had talked about how sitting at 334 Bayside. He says, wait a minute. I did have a call from a fella down there at 334. He wanted a vacation house check. I gave that to Bianchi to follow up on. With that, we all got the south side of town. This house at 334 Bayside was in a very heavily forested, secluded spot. You can't really hear your neighbors. You could have anything going on, and you wouldn't know it. We did a quick run through of the house to see if anything looked amiss, signs of fighting or struggles or anything like that. There wasn't. And so we cleared the house. In the meantime, we put out a description of the girl's car on the local radio station. Very shortly thereafter, we had gotten a call from a citizen who had spotted the car. It was in the little cul-de-sac, half a mile away from the house at 334 Bayside. This car is facing out. I come up the driver's side. Nobody's there. Come around the back through the hatchback. We know immediately both of these girls are dead. He's a friend of Karen Mansick. Karen Mandick. We worked a night shift. We'd get off at the same time. Sometimes I'd give her a ride home. We hit it off pretty well. We truly cared for each other. I know I cared for her. There isn't a doubt in my mind that if Karen was alive today, we'd still be friends. We dated a, a few times, but we decided that we were better friends than boyfriend girlfriend. And we'd get a bottle of wine and we'd sit up on a hill in, in Bellingham and we'd just pass a bottle of wine back and forth. And I trusted her with some secrets that I haven't trusted anybody since. So it was a kind of friendship that we knew that if we needed to talk, there was always an ear there. And it meant a lot to me. Her and I were working that Thursday night. She told me she was going to take a long dinner. 
the next day I got a phone call telling me that they found Karen dead with her roommate. The way she died was just wrong. I don't know. It just it was hard for me to take. I just curled up on the couch and cried. <laughs> My best friend was gone, and I didn't even really talk to her about it. It was at the end of this cul-de-sac near a housing development in South Bellingham where Karen Maddox's car was found. Uh, I heard the call come in about the girls being found when they said that there were, you know, two bodies in a car. So I went over there expecting to work. His name is Rick Nolet. He is also... Crime scene investigator of Bennington Police. Not detective, he's a crime scene investigator. As you know it, CSI. A homicide scene. It was dusk when I got there. There's a car sitting in the middle of this cul de sac. As you approach the car, you can see in the back these two bodies kind of jumbled together. There was no blood splatter which would indicate any violence that had taken place in that vehicle. It was obvious that this was not where the deaths had occurred. It had occurred in another location, and this was a, a dump site. We could see deep furrows in their necks. It was very clear that a ligature had been placed behind them, and they were choked to death. The girls were redressed after whatever occurred, and they were what we believe to be seen in stand. We didn't have the technical capability of knowing, but we assumed there was some sort of a sexual assault. Because we had two girls, we didn't discount the fact that there may have been more than one person involved because, you know, it's tough to kill two people at the same time. We didn't find any fingerprints. There was no weapon to be found. But we found a little post-it note on pink paper written in red ink that said Bayside at 7. It was after we had already discovered a note that listed Ken Bianchi's number on it at the apartment that Karen and Diane Wilder were staying in. So the connection between the girls and Ken Bianchi was irretrievably made at that point. By that time, I put it out on the radio. I wanted an immediate pickup on Kenneth Bianchi. Yes, I was on the road, and I was over in, in South End of Bellingham, and my boss came on the horn. And uh, on the radio, and said, Go to, to Mr. Bipole and call me. I called him, and I said, Okay, I'm here. He's where are you? I said, South Turbo. He said, Okay, hold on. I can see a couple men sort of trying to be sneaky about walking down, down the walkway, but I got to my seat. I started going towards the door, and all of a sudden, down the road, this guy. I started the case at 9 o'clock in the morning. And we've got the bad guy in custody by 5 o'clock in the evening. I sat down with Stan's Bianchi, and he's totally calm. His story changed. Different details, different places that he was, different places he wasn't. But at no time did he ever say that he'd ever been in contact with Karen Mendick since November. And so there have been at least two months that he had talked to her, had seen her, and then a very short time later, Kelly Boyd, Kenneth Bianchi's common-law wife, with whom he had one child, shows up at the station. 
she had been told that her husband had been arrested. And so she had come down to find out what had happened. She'd come up to California with her child. He had followed them back up here to Bellingham from Los Angeles. This is, you know, the man she lives with, the man she's had. Sorry about that, guys. I was really interrupted by my chains again. Back up here to Bellingham from Los Angeles. This is, you know, the man she lives with, the man she's had a child with. And all of a sudden, he's being accused of this. She was shocked. The kid I knew couldn't have ever hurt anybody or killed anybody. He's pretty thoughtful and real help. Um, this interview happened with her on television in 1984, and his wife's name is Kelly Boyd. short time. 
was on January 16, 
they sent somebody from the task force out there to talk to Bianchi, and, you know, he handled himself very well talking to the cops. The guy asked him if he was willing to take a polygraph test, and he said, oh, sure, you know, just let me know when. I guess they kind of laughed it off. Hey, you know, Mrs. Tellison's worried about her daughter. And Ken says, well, yeah, you know, if I had a daughter, I'd be worried now, too. I totally understand where she's coming from. And so the Glenda PD came back and told my mom, Mrs. Tellison, you have nothing to worry about. He checks out just fine. I'm sure, you know, they thought, oh, another one. Another one's reporting a girl's boyfriend as being the hillside strangler. The police did not believe her. And they believed him instead. His name is in the file like many other people's names are in the file. For whatever reason. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to that information. I'm sure it went into the pile of all other information that was gathered at the time. We got clouded with over a thousand clues within the first two weeks. We were better. And there was a lot of information that slipped through the cracks. You can just imagine this. You've probably seen it on some old TV show where everybody was calling in clues and people were scribbling them down on pieces of paper and handing them off to somebody else. And there were hundreds of clues. It was just a list of names, you know, of the date, the name, when it was called in, and then little synopsis of what was done with it. And I remember going through that, and Tanis Alicio Bianchi was in there three times, maybe four. His name had been among hundreds of tips turned in earlier by citizens. Bianchi lived in the same apartment as one victim, across the street from another. Kimberly Martin was killed in a vacant room in an apartment building on Tamarant in Pulley. Reports are that Bianchi lived for a time in the same building. At one point in time, he was living in one of the apartments in the Tamarant complex. Martin was called out from an alcohol prostitution agency to respond to an apartment in that complex. LAPD went and did a door-to-door -door in the apartment complex. They had cops upstairs going to every apartment and asking the guy for their identification. And Bianchi, they spoke to. He was talked to, but basically it was just, oh, yeah, I live here. I don't know anything. Uh, saw nothing. Know nothing. Okay. Enjoy your day. His name then went in the file as somebody interviewed not as a suspect, but a potential witness. There were a lot of information the task force didn't gather that would have prevented a murder in this case. If they would have stayed with it, they would have seen the address on his driver's license, was the same address as the last victim, and so on and so on. Personally, I never saw these leads, but... Joe Chester is now talking. He's another homicide detection. Uh, detective in Glendale Police in California. I'm certain that if I had gotten that tip, we would have done further investigation, um, possibly putting him under surveillance, that sort of thing. Things could have um, ended differently. We'd have made the case, filed it, and those girls up there wouldn't have died. This is ridiculous. And I got a little agitated. It's, you know, this particular one, that was prior to Cindy's murder. 
you know, she probably could be alive today if this had been done properly. The police did not take my mom seriously. Had they taken her seriously, it would have saved lives. They should have believed her. The killing stopped as mysteriously as they began in mid-February of 1978. That coincides with Bianchi's move to Washington State. There has been speculation that the killer might be a policeman. Bianchi worked as a security guard and is described as a man who always wanted to be a police officer. Ken Bianchi gets arrested in Bellingham, Washington. Don't question if it's the guy who strangled these two girls. Light bulbs, I mean, <laughs> the light bulbs are going off everywhere. This is boy. It can't be a coincidence, can it? He was the hillside strangler. Then there have been theories that the killer worked with an accomplice. I'm positive there were two guys. Our investigation supported two guys. There was never any doubt in my mind that it was a, you know, at least two suspects. And I'm thinking, damn, you know, we've got him. I wonder where the other guy is. I got tired of the snow and I just wasn't getting any words financially or job wise or socially. And, uh, you know, you look at California as the sunny, sunshine state, you know, but California has no girls, good job, success. You know, this time let's go, where we go. Again, he's a Bingham chief of police talking to the press. The traitor. But I wasn't really focusing on linking the evidence with California. Just make my case in what we had here in Bellingham. You know that he had moved here in May of 1978 with a common law wife. And that was really about all I knew. We tried to find a lot about his background. We sent uh, two detectives to Rochester, New York, where he'd grown up, to see if there was something there that would give us a further indication of who this person was. Jen didn't talk a lot about his childhood. I knew that his father wasn't in the picture. Um, I knew his mother and him did not have a good relationship. Ken goes, I just don't want to talk about it. So I knew he didn't have a good relationship with her if he's not willing to talk about her. But I didn't know why. Are you worried about Yes. I've been single just very recently. I'm 27 years old. I thought I was adopted when I was three months old. 
I'm three weeks old. But I wasn't, it was three months. Big difference of time there. Like I didn't know I lived with a foster mother before my actual adoption after my mother gave me up. I learned he'd been adopted by the Bianchi family growing up. He had some emotional problems, back rubbing and some other problems. The mother had him seeing some counselors, but didn't seem to follow through. He had a long history of psychological difficulties, uh, and I think that was well documented. But uh, his mother was not willing to let him be analyzed or treated through his entire childhood. He would start acting out in school, and they would come to her and say, your child needs psychological assistance. And she would shift him to another school, and to another school, and to another school. And they eventually reached the conclusion that she needed psychological assistance as well. He was described by police in his hometown of Rochester, New York, as a hellraiser in high school. He graduated from high school, entered college, never finished, tried to get the law enforcement there, did not, and then moved to California to live with his cousin. So you moved out and we moved in with your my cousin Angela and my mother Angela. I think if you looked at everybody's background, you could find some things that a psychiatrist would say, my gosh, this is a weirdo. But that's not going to help me in solving my case. My role is to convict this individual and keep him out of society so that the rest of us are safe forever. Whether he's a bad brother, I really don't care. The defense was paid for by the state. Dean Barrett was appointed into the case. He's a very good attorney in, in all regards. What do you do with a three-year-old kid who's developing psychiatric symptoms and his mother refuses to take him to a psychiatrist? I knew that it would be a well-tried case. We prepared a number of documents as the investigation went on. We found a number of pieces of evidence that became critical in putting this whole puzzle piece together. On the subsequent searches of the home, the 334 Bayside, where Karen indicated she was doing this job, in the staircase going down the stairs, we found head here that belonged to Karen Mandick. We also found two pubic hairs and microscopically matched that of Kenneth Bianchi, and we found one of his other pubic hairs, sometimes other clothing, in the car. Now here, the fibers are not, it's not like saying it's DNA, it's not like a fingerprint. It's not uh, absolutely positive, but it is a very strong link. You know, how we had learned these girls there, how we had overcome them. We didn't have to know all the details. All we had to know was that he did it. We had a great deal of evidence that would tie him up specifically to both of these murders. And at that point, I'm filing the charges. The former security guard is being held in isolation in the Buckingham County Jail. Bianchi has been charged for the Bellingham murders of Western Washington University co-eds, 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder. He had pled not guilty. Everyone pleads not guilty at first. At that point, we were still working with Los Angeles. We didn't know exactly what we needed to do with them. We were just trying to figure that out. The death penalty is really the ultimate penalty, and it has to be a very strong case to get a jury to agree to do that. The experts could not determine whether sexual assault occurred or not. That does not mean that sexual assault didn't occur. We suspected it, 
but we had a kidnapping, we had a premeditated intent to kill. There's at least three days of planning. Tuesday, he's trying to get a hold of Karen, sets it up, and kills her on Thursday. It wasn't a spur of the moment, let's grab her up off the street or drive her as she comes out of work. And he focused in on Karen. Poor Diane, she gets drug into this in the middle of it, but the focus was on Karen. When I started reading about Ken and his connection to the Hillside Strangler, then I started asking why he had to pick Karen. I think he preyed on her. You know, he saw that goodness in her and, and he used it. I don't believe in the death penalty, but my first inclination was I wanted the motherfucker dead. <laughs> March 1979, I filed a notice to seek death. Today we didn't file a death penalty, a notice of intention to ask for the death penalty. As soon as I did that, the defense came up with the plea. Today's court appearance by Bianchi was brief, less than five minutes. Bianchi pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to charges that he killed Diane Weiler and Karen Mandick last January 11th. When you enter a plea like this, you're saying, if I did do this, I was insane at the time. And uh, if my hands did this, Mr. Bianchi would be saying my mind was somebody else. If Bianchi is found to be legally insane, he'd most likely be committed to a state institution for treatment and rehabilitation. With not guilty for use of insanity, but the penalty is going to be a mental institution. It's not the death penalty. Dean Brett filed papers with the Whatcom County Superior Court, which stated his client had already been examined by three doctors, including the one who examined Patty Hurst, and that those doctors concluded Bianchi suffers from a severe multiple personality. Multiple personality used to be called a disassociative reaction, and it gets classified under DSM. And at that time, the three bases of Eve had been published a book about multiple personalities, and so I'd heard of some of these things, but it was something really quite novel. We discovered the defense had brought in Dr. Watkins from the University of Montana, Dr. Watkins, who was really a proponent of multiple personalities, just believed it, really believed it. He had interviewed Kenneth Bianchi. He seemed to be an easygoing, nice, friendly young man, like uh, the boy next door. March 21st, 1979. Dr. Watkins talked to Bianchi, and he supposedly was under hypnosis. And answers that were following down the road leading to multiple personality. I have talked to Victor King, but I think that perhaps there might be another part of Ken that I haven't talked to, and I would like to started asking me 
did I see anything in Ken that might indicate that he was more than one person, that he might have had different personalities and whatnot. From what I know of Ken, he was quiet. He was a bit of an introvert, but he never, never come across as being crazy. But maybe because he was so guarded, he was good at masking his personalities. But I knew he wasn't crazy. He was just one sick individual. Kenneth Bianchi is now undergoing court-ordered tests to determine if he is mentally competent to stand trial on charges he murdered two Bellingham co-eds earlier this year. The results of those tests could have a significant impact on whether Bianchi is ever extradited, charged, and tried in Los Angeles, where he is also accused in 10 of so-called hillside stranglings. Ken was in jail there at the, the county jail. And he was claiming a split personality situation. And so the defense had some psychologists, the prosecution had some psychologists, and the court had psychologists. And they were all going to be doing these interviews with him. Okay, that should work. And so I went up there and I set up the video clip in a small room. And we were going to videotape all of these conversations and all everything that took place. My name is Dr. Ralph B. Allison. I'm a psychiatrist from Davis, California, and I was asked by Judge Kurtz to examine uh, Ken Bianchi uh, to advise the judge in this particular case. The judge, when the question came up that we have a multiple personality case here, this is Dr. Ralph Allison. He's a psychiatrist that was put on to the case. He wanted the best experts he could get, so he called me on the phone when I was in the clinic in Santa Cruz. The judge said, I want one question asked, does he or does he not have multiple personalities? That's it. Ken Bianchi had already been hypnotized by Dr. Watkins and shown this evil entity called Steve who admitted to the killings. Have you heard somebody? that thing that came out, Steve, a multiple personality. I approached him as a patient. I had two sessions and they were a month apart and each one lasted a day and a half. I like you, Dr. Allison. I feel comfortable with you. He was a, a pleasant young man who was totally puzzled by his being arrested for multiple murders. Why can't I remember for sure? I want to know if this is so. He had no memory of any of it. He didn't take responsibility for any of it. He was easy enough to hypnotize. I didn't have any problem with that. I'll just come backwards slowly and then allow your mind to gear into those age states as you get younger. 
I tried to age regress it back at what happened at age nine. He was hiding under his bed from his mother who was whipping him and yelling and screaming at him. Where do you hide? Under my bed, in my closet, behind the house, under my bed, in my closet, behind the house. The best, the best place. Anybody else here to talk to? My friend. Who's that? Stevie. Does that have a last name? I can't remember. What's Walker? Well, underneath his bed, this was the first creation of Steve's. I want to talk to Stevie. I want to talk to Stevie. And I did meet Steve. Oh, there he is, Steve. Are you writing a fucking book? He was as crude and rude as you can get, who admitted to killing women. I fucking killed those broads. Just because they deserved it. Why did you think it was right? Because it makes the world a better place to live in. Did you realize there was a law against killing girls? Fucking laws. Laws are nothing but fucking running our people. At that point, all of us in this field were thinking if it looks like an altered personality, it is. So I have to assume he was telling the truth. I went over to the judge and said, well, Ken Bianchi had multiple personality, and he was in comp to stand trial. You, you're the motherfucker that's been trying to get me to leave him. You can't do that. Can seem like Mr. Wright for a short time in the beginning. I eventually realized that there was nothing real about Kenneth Bianchi. The charisma, the niceness that he showed me, I don't think that was him. I think I saw the fake Ken Bianchi. Ken knew how to charm anybody. He could be a snake charmer. But if he had multiple personalities, why didn't I ever see one of them? Ken, thanks you so fucking good. You know, one time I used to like that asshole. The psychiatrists that were appointed, a number of them felt he was insane because of multiple personality. Dr. Watkins, who was the one who came up with this idea first, Dr. Allison, one of the experts the court chose was that he also a proponent of multiple personalities. Is there anybody else in there who does find you? No, just him. Anybody who's got you? Just that fucking asshole. He's such a goody goody goochie. He was fucking in his fucking way of life. I thought multiple personality was an unusual defense. And I thought that we certainly needed our own experts. And so I used two psychiatrists. One of them was Dr. Martin Orn from Philadelphia. He was an expert in world, one expert on hypnosis, also did a lot of work on multiple personality. We've done a lot of work in finding things which separate people who are faking from those who are not. Dr. Orn 
waited until the other people did their examinations. He did that on purpose. How do you know that that is Steve? How do I know that you didn't try to cook this? I have no idea. I really don't know what to tell you. And he told me, he said, I think that Mr. Bianchi is faking it. I don't think he's under hypnosis. And he said, I have a test to show whether someone is under hypnosis. Let me try something with you. It's a little different from what you tried before. I just was sinking deeper, deeper, letting go. As you open your eyes, there's a chair in front of you. Where Mr. Grant will be sitting, and you will be able to see him clearly in front of you. Open your eyes and look at Mr. Grant. He wants to talk to me. Dean, how you doing? First of all, his spontaneously getting up and shaking the hand is something that you never see with people with subjects. I've never seen any subject do this spontaneously. Even more striking, though, is what he does when I ask him to describe the effect. Is he shaving? Oh, no. Spirit? God, you can see him. You must be able to see him. He says, you see him. You must see him. He's there. You must see him. Now, that's a overplaying. Uh, Shakespeare would say he thinks he gets to protest too much. Dr. Orn, he went to the first interview, and he came out, and he said, well, he flunked the test. He said, he's not under hypnosis. He also said, you know, it's so unusual for multiple personality to only have one personality. So he's going to come back the next day. He told me, he said, now tomorrow, he says, I will develop as many personalities as you want. How many do you want? If he was malingering or faking, then he'd grab onto that hint. And when later hypnotized, he was going to bring out one, two, or three extra personalities. And tell me, are you ready to talk to me now? Yes. What is your name? Yes. All right, Billy, tell me, what do you know about Ken? I don't know Ken. Next day, Bianchi produced another one he called Billy, and Dr. Orn showed that he was, was lying about it. I also selected Dr. Saul Fairstein from Los Angeles, a terrific psychiatrist. I don't think he's a multiple personality. He's a very charming individual who sells himself. He's a real salesman. Dean Gray. The Dean Bird is here. The Dean Bird is here. How can he be in two places? In this case, I believe he was a salesman for the multiple personality. Dean. Dean. He thought he was uh, fabricating hypnosis and fabricating multiple personality defense. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah. After all the reports came in, we had Horn and Fairstein saying he was not mentally ill, he was not insane, saying he's a liar, he's just a killer, and don't believe a thing he says, and everything he says is wrong. On the other side, all the psychiatrists, for the judge and for the defense, said he had multiple personality disorder. I was one of them. We had six psychiatrists pointing like points of a compass in different opinions. I thought, my goodness, you know, just...
It was amazing, but if people that are that imbued with this theory are looking at the theory as opposed to what this represents to society, I mean, we're, we're looking at an extremely dangerous person. I didn't agree with that, uh, with that whole theory of multiple personality. What I saw was not congruent with multiple personality at all, but uh, that's up to the jury to decide. And if he went to trial and the jury did not buy the insanity plea, he would then be subject to the death penalty. That was fine with me because my case was ready to go to trial. I was finding it so hard to come out where I belong, you know. You fucking understand that? It just looked fake to me, but, you know, I'm not a psychologist. They just looked like you would see in a, in a movie. I just think he was looking for a way out because we were going to the death penalty. He was claiming he wasn't responsible. You can't put me in jail. It's not me, it's him. I don't want this fucking shit here anymore. Come on. I don't want no fucking cameras. Turn that shit off. I just thought, what a fake. I'm just asking a question. You know, I didn't know I fucking talked to you. You know, this fucking asshole over here is trying to get rid of me. Bianchi was a scam artist. He's a sociopath. He made it up. Kenneth Bianchi will say or do whatever is needed that best serves the interest of Kenneth Bianchi. I don't believe a word he says at any time. He could tell me the sky is blue. And I wouldn't believe that fucking asshole. Nothing in here suggested that it was more than one person that did the homicides. And knowing him, right through the entire investigation, it was focused on Kenneth Bianchi. There was nothing that would even lead you to suspect he was a, a partner with somebody. It was clear that when he was up in Bellingham, Washington, he was operating on his own. It was very unusual for more than one person to be involved in a serial killing. But there had always been a suspicion that there might be more than one person involved in Los Angeles. Ken Bianchi probably knew that. Ken Bianchi would have given up his mother to get out of this. He would have done anything to get a lifeline for himself. He was very cunning. Bianchi's story changed from interview to interview. And all of a sudden, in the interviews, Kenneth Bianchi. Implicated his cousin, Angela Bono. Bianchi was claiming that Angelo Bono was part and parcel to these homicide cases in Los Angeles.